This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And uh, when the weather is as cold as it was over the weekend and is today, it does focus the mind on those who don't have a permanent roof over their heads and especially on those sleeping rough. But Victoria's housing crisis goes much deeper than even that with the most recent figures showing around 82,000 people or about 40,000 households in Victoria remain on social housing waiting lists. So why are we here and are things likely to improve? Jenny Smith is CEO of the Council to homeless persons and it's great to have you with us Jenny and uh, when the weather is like this I think a lot of people really do start to worry that we we seem stuck. Um, So many people are still looking for a permanent home. Yeah good morning Carly and good morning Dylan and everybody. Um, Yeah I think stuck's a really good way to describe it. I think um, uh, we had hoped after the federal election that we'd um, a national policy for tackling housing affordability and homelessness um, uh, come into place um, and we have seen a federal uh, housing minister Michael Suka be appointed and a, an assistant minister uh, for homelessness Luke Howarth be appointed but we haven't seen much sign yet that uh, actually recognising that this is a problem that needs a strategic and systematic approach is, is going to happen so in in that case, you know, when we're seeing about 25,000 people homeless in Victoria every night, I think it's great to see that our parliamentarians are taking this issue by the scruff of the neck and um, have called uh, an inquiry in the upper house in, into homelessness. And so th- this, I understand, Jenny, is, is a very recent announcement from the Victorian government. What is the scope of this inquiry and, and what might come from it? Well, we, we, I don't think we've seen the terms of reference yet, Dylan, but uh, when you look at the Hansard, it's a, a very broad scope. Um, the the um, intention of the inquiry is to have a look at why we have this homelessness problem uh, in our community and what needs to be done about it, and we really welcome that rather than it being a uh, more narrow focus. And it feels to me that, I mean, in recent years, certainly in the city of Melbourne, there was a lot of discussion around people, basically visible homelessness, people sleeping rough in the city. And But we didn't have an inquiry at that time, is that right? When was the last time that we really looked at this issue in, in detail? Well, I think as a community, um, the last systematic approach was... Um uh, Kevin Rudd's taking homelessness on uh, as an issue as as the Prime Minister and making it his human services focus and out of that <coughs> excuse me we got a, a national strategy on homelessness we got uh, additional funding to demonstrate around the country uh, the types of services that are effectively so we know what we work we now know what works and really all we need is uh, the resources to take those sorts of support services to scale whether that's for rough sleepers or women and children escaping family violence young people who are unable to go home the other thing we saw at that time was a uh, in the global financial crisis um, around 2009 we saw an injection of uh, social housing as economic stimulus into um, the country and that was fantastic it was about a year's worth um, of what we need so that investment of um, around 25,000 uh, affordable housing properties and social housing properties was the sort of thing we need to see every year but we just saw it as a once off and you did see rough sleeping uh, in Sydney and in Melbourne uh, go down uh, as those homes were implemented but th- since that time we haven't had anything systematic and so it's um devastatingly disappointing but not surprising uh, that homelessness is just gradually increasing because uh, we just don't have the settings in place. We have seen um, some significant evidence from our state government in terms of um, putting the service supports in place that we need to um, engage people who are rough sleeping and try and get them out of um, uh, that as well as service coordination efforts from our uh, city councils and particularly in the um, inner urban ring but the injection of housing that people on our lowest incomes uh, can afford uh, just hasn't happened. 
And I mean, in terms of what is needed to improve the situation, obviously, you know, funding is is one part of it. But do we need a more kind of fundamental rethink of of what works and what we need to do to properly address this problem of homelessness, given it's been, you know, worsening in in recent years quite substantially? Well, I think as a community, we tend to focus on the short-term and crisis responses and think about providing short-term crisis housing options uh, for people, but don't kind of think it through um, from start to finish and think, well, that's fine, we've got a a short-term shelter or or temporary stay for somebody, but we haven't worked out where they're going to live. And uh, the reality is that we have a shortfall of over 100,000 social housing properties just in Victoria, that's about 430,000 nationally. And until we start to uh, address that and recognise that um, uh, both uh, federal and state government in particular have got to take a role in delivering on subsidised housing for people on our lowest incomes, as well as, as we've been hearing a lot about recently, um, the inadequacy of uh, Centrelink payments, of New Start payments uh, for people to just try and live. Until we tackle that, we're just going to see it get worse. Uh, We're speaking with Council to Homeless Person CEO Jenny Smith about the current state of homelessness in Victoria and also uh, the parliamentary inquiry into it that's just been called by the Victorian government. And I wonder, I mean, you just mentioned the raise the rate uh, issues there and the the fact that uh, most groups, I'm I'm assuming yours as well, is looking at for at least a $75 a week increase to the rate of um, unemployment benefits. But... uh, I mean, that's one thing, and the reason the the Prime Minister has said, oh, we're not going to do that. Are we likely to get the injection of of money into social housing when when the the government isn't necessarily going to commit more funds? Well, I think that's why this um, parliamentary inquiry is... uh so important because I think what Victoria is saying is well what the federal government does is what the federal government will do and and I think we've seen media recently suggesting that the Premier is trying to work very well with the Prime Minister on issues but waiting for the federal government um, which has uh, made it pretty clear that um, you know effectively there's been um, a loss in value of homelessness and, and housing funding to the states and territories of 82 million over the last um, five years so there has far from an increase in funding it's uh, actually been losing value and so the Victorian uh, Parliament is saying we are concerned about this we're seeing it in all of our electorates and if you look at the Hansard where um, the inquiry was argued for, you know, a wide range of um, upper house parliamentarians um, from all sides um, spoke to the importance of this inquiry. They're saying we want to see what we can do about it. And I think it, I think we do have to understand that the states do need the support of the federal government, but there are some important things they can do. They can uh, invest directly in social housing, and we're seeing a little bit of that, but we've asked the state government to... Um, increase what it's doing by about 10 times Um, but it can also help us a lot with planning for lower cost housing as we go because really every time we do a housing development or redevelopment we should be uh, thinking about social housing and affordable housing as part of the mix and we're not seeing that uh, very much in our community and certainly not systematically. It's not required. So we call that inclusionary zoning. So um, that's what we need to see um, from the state government. And I'm interested, interested in what's happening internationally in this space and I guess what we can learn from other contexts around the world to, to properly address the situation here. And I noticed that um, a, a leading um, homelessness expert, Dr Peter Mackey from Cardiff University in Wales, was in Melbourne recently talking about the Welsh model where government is, as I understand it, legally required to deliver homelessness prevention support. I mean, do you think we need that sort of legislative change to make it incumbent on governments you know, whatever stripes they are at the time to address this issue in a kind of holistic and, and comprehensive way? Well, I think what it would do if there was a legal requirement is it make it pretty clear that we uh, believe that as a community we should be doing something about it and I don't think we've said that very clearly as yet. I think the worst case scenario for that would be for a federal government to legislate that it's a problem of the states and, and possibly local governments without putting resources in. But 
But I think what they've shown in Wales is that if you do um, invest and get in more before people become homeless and uh, assist them to retain the housing that they've got, the tenancy that they've got, um, even sometimes the mortgage that they've got, then that is a hell of a lot more effective than trying to sort things out once people have lost that home. So they've seen uh, the demand for crisis accommodation and shelters reduce by 18% in just four years. So they are making progress. I mean, I think the other... um, you know, if you like the rock stars of uh, homelessness of Finland, and they have essentially uh, invested heavily in community housing and subsidised housing. And so uh, there's no need for anybody to become homeless in Finland because their uh, Centrelink equivalent payment um, is such that 80% of the rent is guaranteed and uh, other subsidies are available and housing is affordable, is available to be affordable on pe- to people on low incomes. And also, if you do have ongoing complex- complexity, they do have um, support programs with the housing uh, to assist people to sustain that housing. So they know how to do it. It's not rocket science, but they're doing it extremely well. And um, if you walk the streets of Helsinki, you will not see homeless people. Well, let's hope that um, those that conduct the Victorian parliamentary inquiry into this issue um, look further than around the corner for for evidence of what works. Thanks so much for joining us, Jenny, and um, all the best. And uh, we look forward to to reading what your submissions are going to be to that inquiry. Thank you very much. Um, Jenny Smith is Council to Homeless Persons CEO, speaking about homelessness in Victoria. It's freezing at the moment, as we know, but the um, upcoming parliamentary inquiry into that issue. Last year in the AFL, the Collingwood Football Club surprised a lot of people when they went from being a middling team with their coach on the ropes to within a hair's breadth of winning the grand final. Much has been written about the cultural changes that were enacted by the club following a wide-ranging review and the role that played in their turn of form, but for us on the outside, it's difficult to get a sense of what it's actually like within the inner sanctum of such high-profile football clubs such as Collingwood and the trials and tribulations affecting individual players. Filmmakers Marcus Cobbledick and Josh Cable gained incredible access to the club throughout the 2018 season and have forged this into a really fascinating film appropriately titled Collingwood from the Inside Out, which is screening as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. And Marcus and Josh join us today in the studio. How are you going? Great, thanks. thanks. And so many listeners would know that I am a diehard Collingwood fan, um, but how important was it to you to make a film that I guess wouldn't just appeal to the Collingwood fan base, but to, to people more broadly? I think that um, for me, I really wanted to tell a human story. And I think when you set out to tell a human story, that's something that connects with just anyone. That doesn't, that's not exclusive to just Collingwood fans. I think, I think a lot of people actually um, found some sort of newfound connection to Collingwood over the course of 2018 because they saw things in Nathan Buckley, such as him... You know, we remember at the grand on grand final day, the banner going down and Buckley going over and hugging one of the cheer squad members. And everyone sees that and they go, oh, I really like that, you know, regardless <laughs> of whether you're a Collingwood fan or not. So what this documentary shows is is who these people are as just as people and just tells a, a human story which can connect with anyone. And so is that how you sold the idea to Collingwood when you initially went to them with this? Yeah, it was... Yeah, I was definitely pitching it to them as a way of showing who you guys really are as as people. Because um, I think uh, being at, you know at a part of a part of Collingwood, they're one of the most highly criticised clubs and speculated upon in the whole of Australia, probably. And for them, um, you know, that they're traditionally, I think, a lot of people look at them and think you, they just see them as what they do out in the field. And um, for them, it was an opportunity to show who they really are. And I think that was definitely appealing to them. Yeah, and I think that idea that they're a club club that um, love to be loved and love to be hated at the same time um, was, you know, that's the reputation. But this also sought to to look at them in a different way. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. It's kind of, um, I mean, we've, we've had... I think, the, as I mentioned before, like we've had a lot of people who have 
told us that they've found a little soft spot for Collingwood, um, even though they've hated them for so many years. Yeah. So this is actually a propaganda film then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are you Collingwood fans? No, no. Neither of you? No. no not traditionally, but I, I, look, I, I worked there for a couple of years before making this and through sort of the process of making it as well, I definitely want them to win on the weekend. Definitely have a spot, soft spot for them now. And so did you know what you were going to focus on when you went into this film? Because, of course, 2018 was a really bizarre year in a lot of respects in terms of just Collingwood's form turning around and, you know, Nathan Buckley's kind of public appearance seemingly to have softened a little bit and he was speaking in slightly different terms. Were you just kind of along for the ride and, and seeing where things would end up last year? Because a lot was kind of going on. Yeah, it was, it was very lucky the way things played out, I think. Um, initially, I was just really interested in the way that that season was set up for Bucks in particular. He just he'd had a mountain of pressure on him throughout 2017 and he'd just been re-signed, but all the pressure was still there. He still had to... The, the club, the team still had to improve and that was really interesting for me to just see how that goes. Um and, yeah, and I just sort of wanted to follow a few different other players' stories as well. Just to... The main goal was just to tell their stories and their stories outside of the club and just see how that evolves over the course of a season. And the way it played out was just... Worked pretty well, I think. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's... You probably um, noticed that we've we've got a scene, an, an exit interview from Jared Blair, um, and also incredibly intimate scene that one when yeah Nathan Buckley is basically delivering the bad news to him that his career's over at Collingwood essentially. That's right, and I mean to get access to that kind of moment um, is very rare, and and I guess that um, you know testament to the trust and respect that. That Josh built up over the course of well, not just last year, but over the time, at, over his time at the club. Mm. Yeah. And so, the, the key people you follow in this film are Adam Trelaw, Brody Grundy, Jared Blair, and, and Nathan Buckley. How did you decide on that kind of core cast of, of characters? Uh, I guess I, I'd known them. I knew each of those guys a little bit from my time working there, um, and I thought that they were just all in sort of slightly different unique situations and it'd just be good to get a nice spread across the team of different stories i like i knew jared blair his career was on the line from the start really you know he's he was on a one-year contract and struggling to find his way into the team so it's just a really that was just a really interesting perspective that i don't think is um, necessarily focused on a lot in in the afl media um adam trelaw I didn't know the extent of what he was going through, so that was a real surprise uncovering that stuff. Um, and Brody, he's yeah, he's unique, and that was just I think I thought that he would be really interesting for people who are Collingwood fans and beyond that, just the way he thinks about his own career and the game and that sort of thing as well. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because on the one hand, um, you know, champion footballers such as in particular, you know, Adam Talor and, and Brody Grundy. They earn heaps of money to kick around a football on a weekend. It can be hard to have kind of, you know, too much sympathy for anything they might be going through. But they are human beings who, you know, in, in Adam Talor's case in particular, suffers pretty extreme performance anxiety. And when you have people judging them on the way they play um, on the weekend, the way they kick a football, the way they might, you know, attack a particular game, that can still have pretty serious consequences for people regardless of, of their kind of standing in the public. Yeah, I think and they, they totally get what they're signing up for they know that there's going to be that criticism on them um as that's part of their job but that doesn't make it any easier to handle i think that's what we explore i I think um there's a scene where adam is basically revealing his problems or challenges with anxiety and his mental health and then you see him on on the couch looking at his phone and, and social media plays a massive part of it as well i mean the, the players are coming out saying that they're having to give up social media because they're up at two o'clock in the morning checking feeds and and reading a lot of negative stuff as well so it's i, I guess um it's over over time it's been more challenging for for players yeah, yeah, and we've seen that in extreme form. I mean, speaking of Melbourne International Film Festival and football-related films with the Adam Goods documentary, The Australian Dream, and also the final quarter, just the, the impact that sort of hounding from the public can have on footballers, in particular Indigenous footballers. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's that's an incredible film and a great example of it as well. Yeah, it's sort of, um, you know, to think that Adam had to leave the game in the way that he did and, uh, and still has a lot of... Um, he needs to to repair. Uh, th- there's still a, a lot of work to, to do before he's ready to be the public face again. Mm. Yeah, we are really seeing a different side to football in those documentaries, but also in yours. And we're speaking about Collingwood from the inside out. Um, we've got directors Josh Cable and also Marcus Cobbledick in studio with us. And we're seeing a kind of a more wholesome and vulnerable um, footballer, I suppose, than party boys uh, out fast cars or whatever it is that um, we imagine people with that much money per year are doing with their time are the people that you um, spoken you know you've you've uh, followed in this documentary typical of a football player or is there just way too much diversity or do we you know is there another doco coming showing the kind of fast lane or yeah I don't I don't think there is a typical footballer actually I think that's what um, was part of what's good about this documentary is it just shows that um, a football club's made up of a lot of different people and personalities and yeah and they're actually probably not what people think if you're just watching them on the weekend and we all we hear the those negative stories about the the real you know the party antics and that sort of thing but in reality yeah they're actually quite similar to a lot of a lot of yeah. normal people well also and I thought maybe even a little bit more wholesome like one of them there's one shot and maybe um, I, I'm the only one that might have noticed but you know um, Jared was using cloth nappies for his child which yeah, really stood yeah. out to me and it's just I mean that's not your run-of-the-mill kind of person that's someone who's you know thinking of the environment yeah. in a really loving relationship and you know I think um, we saw you know cuddly dogs and you know just this sort of lovely homely side of these players yeah I mean what we're seeing from Bucks in, in his change in approach is is a growing trend in in top level sport as well. Like when he was coached, there was certainly that old school style of you know largely based on fear and intimidation. Um, that doesn't work with with Gen Y and these these trying to get the best out of these young people, being more approachable and compassionate and. You know, he talks about embracing imperfections um, and uses Japanese pottery as an example. Like this is um, this is all part of what he needed to do to to reach this this young audience. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. It does feel like there's a bit of a generational shift kind of happening at the moment. With you know, some people calling out the Sydney Stack Eddie Betts kind of you know high five after that amazing goal a few weeks ago when the game was done, but people didn't like any sense of camaraderie between you know two guys on opposing teams and that yeah. sort of thing and it feels like there is a shift happening with what's happened you know with um, Richmond a few years ago as well yes. and and the yeah. Bulldogs too that there's a lot of interest in how football clubs have had to kind of reinvent themselves yeah. to get the most out of players but also just be happy workplaces as that's well. right yeah I mean there was a great article written in in a footy magazine about vulnerability being sports last secret weapon and uh, yeah as you said there's Elite clubs are spending a lot of time and money into generating this, but I, I guess that the the basis of it is really simple. You know, if if you sh- are sharing stories and more of yourself with your, your teammates or your colleagues, um, you're going to be more connected and you're going to give each other more o- on and off the field. And I guess we kind of feel like there's some lessons there for anyone in any industry. Um, particularly from a management or a middle management level, there's some clues in this film on how to to reach this Gen Y better. And not, and not only you know Gen Y or that generation, but the next one down. And we yes. saw that um, there's um, Nathan Buckley coaching his kids' footy team, which must be pretty cool having yeah. him as a coach. <laughs> but but he's he just said I'm just a regular dad in this, and you can see him sort of giving some wise words to some of the the other kids on the team saying, you know what, we're going to make mistakes, like chill out and, we, you know, don't um, take it on too much, I suppose. And I, I, it was refreshing to see that and he does talk about that being quite different to the way that he was coached even as a junior. And I wonder, I mean, we, you didn't go into it in the, the documentary, but I, um, you know, watch a lot of women's football and I wonder if there is this kind of broader cultural change coming through as well with with women being a bigger part of these clubs as players yeah i think that's i think that's absolutely a part of it um 
and it takes it probably takes a long time to to actually change things properly because there's a lot of football is been traditionally set up as a very masculine environment for so long so it's it's obviously going to take time but we're definitely seeing those sort of shifts and the introduction of women's footy has absolutely played a big part in that and, and it is and it is being part of being a man to cry mm. yep. and we see that and and see that embraced in this documentary but i imagine that that i don't know how you guys felt watching that but it it, it felt good to see that on screen yeah, it's interesting because watching football, you kind of become accustomed to players crying after a grand final loss. That's happened, you know, for years, but not talking about, you know, their inner world and, and um, you know, the, the things they're going through from a mental health perspective as openly as someone like Adam Talor has in this film and also players taking time out of the game to deal with mental health issues. It feels like the conversation has really opened up around that, that, yeah. that can only be a good thing. Well, I think a good example is the story that Josh has got about how Adam first revealed um, how his, his mental health problems, which just happened by chance after one of the games. Josh, can you tell us about how yeah, that? Yeah, I, I was just following him along to one of the games and it was just asking him a few questions before about what it's like, you know, with all the pressure on him as a star player and he was sort of giving little clues at what he was going through. He goes to the game, he gets best on ground, kicks two goals, and then uh, straight afterwards, Bucks comes up and gives him a hug, and I thought I'd ask Adam about that later. And um, then he, when I was asking him about it, he said, yeah, Bucks just came up and said that he loved me because I've been dealing with some pretty, some pretty hard times at the moment with anxiety and that sort of thing, and that's how he um, revealed it to me. And it was really surprising, but also just showed this change in a in a football club that bucks as a coach coming up to a player and telling them that he loves them is just something that would never happen five or more years ago you know so absolutely not yeah, yeah. it was um it's pretty significant yeah and i mean there are some pretty raw and intimate scenes in this film when adam trelaw is talking about his experience but also jared blair being told that his career is pretty much done was there anything that you filmed that you thought don't know if i should put that in there because they might not really like that or, or what was that process like editorially deciding what to include and i guess your relationships maintaining those relationships with the players yeah it's it's pretty tricky sometimes because when you're filming this stuff um like it's it's not I don't definitely didn't enjoy being in the room filming Jared being told that his career's over and then having to follow him out to his car, putting sticking a camera in his face and just because that's just what I have to do for this film when really it doesn't really feel good as a friend of Jared's. Um, but he was he he and all of the characters were really good in understanding what I needed to do and um, and the purpose of why I was filming these things and especially Bucks, he really gets it um, in terms of... He's, I think he's a bit of a movie buff himself and he understands why I was asking him to film certain things and that that's definitely very helpful when you're filming this sort of project as well. Yeah. Well, we've been speaking all about Collingwood from the inside out, screening as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. I think there's a session on Thursday, but that one's sold out as far as I understand. But there is one that's recently been announced this coming Saturday and it will be screening on ABC on Tuesday, September 3rd at 9.30pm as well. So you can catch it then if you don't manage to get along to me. If we've been chatting with directors Josh Cable and Marcus Kobodik. Thanks so much for joining us on Triple R. Thanks for having Thanks us. All the best with the film. I'll be so interested to um, see what the kind of broader response is to it, especially when it gets that telly release. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks yeah, very too. much. You are with Kalia and Dylan and The Grapevine, as well as Sally Rippon and Jane Sullivan. And it is uh, book week next week. Character dress-up day will be happening at a primary school near you. And it's, um, I suppose we couldn't have picked a better week to talk about those children's books that influence, influence us throughout our lives. And um, Jane Sullivan's newest book is called story time growing up with books and um jane you know her columns in the uh, age and city morning herald she also contributes to other publications has a long history with uh, writers and the writing community and she's the author of two novels 
The White Star and Little People. And of course, uh, Sally Rippon joins us monthly, author, illustrator, creator of Polly and Buster, which has been keeping you busy, Sally. Keeping me very busy and nice to have a little bit of downtime for a week until book week starts. Yeah, <laughs> and a big welcome to you, Jane. And thank you for your book, um, Storytime. And I, I'd love to know why you decided to write this one. Well, it was it was something that really came um, up over a few years. I was thinking about it because, as you say, I write about books all the time and I'm an avid reader and have been all my life. But the thing that occurred to me and kept occurring to me is that I've read some wonderful books over the years, so great classics like Dickens and um, George Eliot and Tolstoy, etc. But nothing has really had quite such an impact on me as the books I read when I was a child. They were the ones that stay with me and that seem to have the most emotional resonance for me and, and, uh, and, and in many ways formed me as a reader and a writer. So I decided what I would like to do. I was very curious about that time. I thought what I would do was I would pick a few books that I loved and perhaps one or two I didn't love so much when I was a child and first of all I would think about what I could remember about them and I would write that down and then I would go back and reread them and I would write down what I thought about when I reread them and how much my opinion might have changed or what new things had come up for me or what new memories had come up for me and then I thought well I'll do a bit of research about the writers of the books as well and try and put it all together and I thought at first well maybe this will be an essay or um, an article but it grew and it grew and it grew and at some stage I realised this was going to be a whole book. And it's really fascinating to read the story because it does become like a story there's almost a journey that we embark on with you where as you're rediscovering these books you're also rediscovering yourself as a child Mm. you're remembering who you were at that time when you were reading it and sometimes it's a very intimate book you really are um sometimes when you go back and read the book again you haven't remembered yourself the same way and other times you realize that you weren't perhaps as frightened as you were but you go into some quite dark places and Mm -hmm. you really do um engage the reader in the way that you're very it's a very intimate exploration of rediscovering your childhood self and I can certainly say as a children's author it's very vindicating to read how powerful children's books can be on an adult <laughs> they certainly are I, one one of my pet hates is people who write down children's books as being how somehow trivial and less important than books for adults because I really think you can put up an argument that in a way children's books are more important than adults books because they do have such an effect on us and they are so formative and when I went back as you say, when I went back to explore these books, one of the most surprising things I found was not just about the books, but about myself. And I found that my picture of myself as a child was in many ways completely wrong and, or slightly inaccurate or whatever. And in some ways, I was not quite such a good kid as I thought I was. And in some ways, I was a rather better and more interesting kid than I thought I was. So that was all a, a great journey of discovery for me. Did, did you find any common themes um, across the books that you kind of re read and, and re-looked at as to whether they still, you know, stand up today? I mean, did you find when you read some that you thought, oh, geez, you know, why did I like that? That really wasn't there. <laughs> it was more my imagination kind of doing doing the work. Well, that was particularly true, I have to say, of Enid Blyton. Um, in some cases, in perhaps in most cases, I was equally delighted to read the book again because even though it spoke to me in a different way it still spoke to me in a very eloquent way but the Enid Blyton books and in particular there was a book called The Castle of Adventure which I decided to go back and reread and I was appalled at how bad the writing was I had completely I was completely unaware as a child of of this as as a problem it it never seemed to stop me wanting to read the books but as an adult there was this little inner critic in my head that all the time was saying look what she's done here this is ridiculous and what a stupid plot and she can't do characters and 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 the little critic wouldn't shut up fascinating isn't it i mean does, does that matter if as a child you get something out of it even though the writing might be kind of a bit shoddy i mean does it matter that it is if if it's it managed to to, to well, awaken something ideally ideally all children's <laughs> books should be beautifully written but in fact um a lot of them in fact particularly the area i was reading um that time in the 1950s and 1960s it was very dominated by enid blyton and she was not a good writer but she was a very prolific writer uh, I'm, I'm amazed she did about 700 books a year or something incredible like that and 
and she did have a knack I discovered of getting children's attention and fascinating them and, and hooking them on her writing and I had to try and think quite hard about what it was that she had because it wasn't good writing it was something else and I, I, I got it down to about four things in the end one is that she had this power of evoking the idea of adventure which was very important I think for children who we, we forget how bored children get you know they, they really really want to have exciting lives and for most part they're not exciting so they want to get into this world that, that's very exciting but they want to do it in a safe way so they don't really want to meet um, uh, thieves and spies and murderers and so on but they would really like to read about other kids meeting thieves and spies <laughs> they and really would like to climb a tree yeah. and go into a different world yeah, and go down secret passages and go into <laughs> dangerous places so there was all that there was also the idea that kids go off on their own all day without adults and they take food with them and the food's very important in Enid Blyton books and animals are very important too that most of the kids have pet animals or they have some sort of wild animal that they're crazy about and in the castle of Advent the castle of venture it's it's um it's a uh, um an Australian cockatoo called Kiki who is uh, always makes fun of everybody in, in this screechy voice and has all these little sayings that she comes out with that I used to find hilarious as a child. They're a bit repetitive now, but never mind. And um, what's the fourth element? Uh, I've forgotten what the fourth <laughs> element is, but anyway, there was enough there to make... I know what it was. It was what you were saying, Dylan, about using her imagination. Because Ina Blyton describes things so sparsely, it means that children can use their imagination and they're encouraged to and I found when I was rereading I had a very vivid picture of this castle and its its spooky rooms and the central courtyard where the kids went and that was not because of what Nina Blyton told me but because she gave me that opportunity to use my imagination and to dream about what this place was and what these kids were like and so I, I in the end I really appreciated that she did something important that worked with children and I respected her for that even though I didn't actually respect her writing very much. Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> you say that because I tried to read like read her books to my kids mm. and I didn't enjoy that process very much but I loved um, the Faraway Tree series in particular myself did, when I was a kid. Did your kids enjoy the books though? They did, but yeah. they've got so much choice now compared to yes. what we did. And we read yeah. those books over and over again. And, you know, we brought those characters into our day-to-day -day life. Like my mum mishears things all the time. And so it'd be like, oh, you're such a saucepan woman. And things <laughs> like this, which was funny for us because we all knew the story. So it was kind of, you know, embedded in our childhood. But I, I mean, did you learn anything about Enid Blyton through this process that you didn't know before? Well, I looked up her life, as I did with all the authors, and um, what what I found was that she was an utter workaholic. She she used to toss off these books. Uh, the Castle of Adventure was part of a series of books called Culture Books, and she used to write them in about a week. And I was just astounded. I thought, well, maybe she decides to sit back and do a lot of research and a lot of thinking before she actually starts the book but no she just used to sit down and it all just came to her and she saw the characters and she just it was almost like she was taking dictation she all wrote it down on her typewriter and she never went back and revised anything she just wrote as it was that was what made her so enormously prolific and over 700 books yeah she said, isn't there yeah. in her lifetime and such a broad range of books too you know from mysteries to picture books to um adventure books yeah you, I mean, you have to respect her, even if you like her. You have to respect her. She's an amazing woman. I have to say she probably wasn't a very good mother, though. Um, one of her daughters wrote a memoir, which was pretty damning, that Enid used to just shut herself up in the studio and write away. And meanwhile, the kids were just left to amuse themselves in the nursery or go and see the... the the staff in those days that middle class families used to have staff and uh, I don't think they were very happy that Enid was deserting them for these imaginary children that obviously were much more important to her than the real ones. And this is something you do uh, throughout the book where you will go back and you'll read a book and you'll do some research on the author and sometimes you turn up things that then put you off the book a little bit like when you're reading up about the author of Alice in Wonderland Lewis Carroll and yes. so that does create a little bit of a dilemma doesn't it in the way that you experience reading as a child you come to it very clean and then when you're reading it as an adult and you do know something about Lewis Carroll and his history how does that change your approach in how you feel about the original connection to the book? I think it means that my feelings are afflicted in the case of Lewis Carroll um 
Uh, uh, many of you out there in Snowland will probably know that there's been a lot of controversy about whether he was or wasn't a pedophile and whether he made any approaches to the young girls that he used as the models for his stories, and in particular Alice Liddell, who was the model for Alice in Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass. I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that question, and there are various people who believe that he was quite innocent, and there are others who believe he is guilty, and there are others who have a sort of view in between so we'll never get to the bottom of that um i went through a a stage that i'm rather ashamed of in my teens Um, we had to write an essay at school about a particular writer and i picked lewis carroll and i went to the library and i found a book i haven't been able to track down since but it was all about the secret life of lewis carroll and you know how he was really this man who fancied little girls so i plagiarized large amounts of this book in my essay and i thought i was being terribly clever and i got a very very low mark the worst mark I've ever got for an A at school and the teacher at my essay she said very good until you try to be too clever and looking back on it didn't know about the plagiarism she just didn't like what I'd written and looking back on it I think she was right I, I think I was trying to be too clever and I didn't feel any sympathy for Alice I didn't feel any sympathy for Lewis Carroll I just wanted to be a smart ass and show how clever I was I hope I've got beyond that now but I do worry sometimes <laughs> I might not have you kind of alluded to, to the fact earlier that, you know, so many of these books you read as a child really stayed with you and, um, you know, if you're judging, for example, a poetry prize, prize you write about this in your book, mm. that you might consume a whole bunch of books in a very short space of time, some of which will be great, but you won't really remember individual lines mm. or anything specific mm. about them um, later. What is it about the experience of reading as kids that means that we're so strongly attached to those books? I'm not sure. I mean, even after writing a whole book about this, I'm still not sure. Um, I think it might be one thing is that we're we're a comparatively blank slate. Uh, We don't have um, many things to compare the book with, either in the sense of other books or uh, what's happened in our lives. And um, you're talking about poetry. um, There's a poem in in the, the Lewis Carroll books called Jabberwocky. And I think to this day I can still recite that poem even though it's all nonsense words Well, I can't recite to you a poem I read last week there's something about the long term memory too that, that's very vivid and it's also I think because these are literally formative years I pick the years between the ages of 7 and 11 to write about and these were the ages when I was first being able to read by myself up to the point where I was starting to read adult books so I was really concentrating on children's books in those days we didn't have young adult books they didn't exist and uh, they've definitely shaped me as a reader and they've shaped me as a writer in all sorts of subtle ways I'm I'm still analyzing even after finishing the book I'm still discovering new things about what they those books did to me and there is I mean there is a lot of nostalgia in the books that people buy for children and I know uh, my kids have been given as presents you know Anne of Green Gables for instance from people mm. that love that and I look I loved the film more than the the series actually when I was a kid but um, I mean have you did you sort of think about that in in the sort of book industry about how nostalgia plays for what young people are reading oh, these it does. days there's no doubt about that i mean we're even getting nostalgic for harry potter now aren't we there's a new generation of kids <laughs> coming up and parents buying them harry potter books it's only 20 years old or yeah. something isn't it yes. yeah. That. Yeah. yeah it keeps renewing itself but i do think um nostalgia aside there is something about the best of these books that that does speak to generations of children and one one of the favorite books i read was the wind in the willows and um i think that's an absolutely extraordinary book i think it was very much ahead of its time i think it does a very difficult thing which it combines the sort of rambunctious uh, world of animals having fun and in particular mr toad who's this dreadful character but we all love him and it combines that with a strange numinous poetic quality as well in, in the book and and you wouldn't think that anybody could pull it off but Kenneth Graham who wrote this book absolutely nailed it I think and I'm full of admiration for him and there are certain books like that I would love to continue children to read and there's a few a few books in in that I've referred to that aren't so well known and I would like them to become better known and have more more children and adults reading them and the other lovely thing you did throughout the book is you have asked other writers what were some of the books that they yes, remember from yes. their childhood and and so how did you go about doing that did you just send out a, 
a question to a few different writers? Well, this was actually my publisher's idea, Ventura Press, and I think it was a very good one. I mean, it's partly a commercial thing. They thought that, you know, if if Andy Griffith has something (laughs) to write about about a book, people might be more interested in the book. But in... I think it actually added an extra dimension to the book and I'm, I'm very pleased with the result. Yeah, what I did was I basically wrote to a whole lot of writers and said, I'm, I've written this book and I would love to have some contributions from um, other writers about their favourite books. Would you like to pick one? And, and I was very, very delighted at, at the very generous response I got. Uh, people would, would take the time and trouble to think about their favourite book and put it into words for me, and it's not as if I could offer them a huge fee or anything like that. I couldn't, but that they were able to do that, and, and um, so I'm delighted to have that extra dimension. Mm. And it, they also, some of them wrote about the same books I'd picked, but some of them wrote about completely different books, so I had a, an even broader canvas as a result. Jane Sullivan is with us and I was speaking about her book Storytime Growing Up With Books which is all about the children's books that live on in our um, in our memories but also influence us through our lives and Sally Rippon is with uh, Dylan and I as well and Sally talking about other writers and the books that influence them what is what is the book that lives on with you and has influenced you the most? Oh so I, I challenged both Carly and Dylan to come up with one each as well so the one that I brought in is E.B. White Shall its web and that I noticed in your book is one that Trent Dalton chose as well yes <laughs> interestingly that's right, yes. and so I think um, I've read it again as an adult and the language is beautiful but definitely as a child it was very vivid and it was that idea of really understanding how books can develop empathy that you can see beyond your own experience of the world and in this case into what it would be like to be a creature it also explores life and death it explores the cycles of nature and so in a safe way I suppose as you talk about often in your book Jane it's a practice of emotion that you're I mean obviously at the very end everybody knows that the spider dies but I was devastated to read that as a child and cried and cried and cried but I was happy to experience that (laughs) intense emotion in that safe place and I think that's what really good children's Mm. books can do they can help children really explore that complexity of emotion. That's absolutely right I've written about that in my book too that Mm. um, I've entered into some very dark places some very fearful places and I've gone back and rediscovered my fear and and my grief at at reading and and I I was reduced to tears uh, over a number of books and I was also reduced to very very frightening uh, state where I almost wanted to hide under the bed and put the book down but I couldn't do it I had to read on and it's important I think to revisit those emotions because I don't think they're ever quite as vivid and as strong as they are in childhood even reading you know a wonderful book now it never quite gets me to the same emotional point as as um C.S. Lewis or, or um, one of those writers did when I was a child. And I think adults are often afraid to let children explore that side of reading too, aren't they? And mm. yet they're not so careful about what they might be um, looking at on a screen, but they think, oh, no, that book's too old for you. But I think a child only brings the capacity for understanding to the page like you say a lot of it is filling in the gaps from their own life experience or yeah. their own imagination and don't, don't be afraid to let children read these books I think because children are resilient and, mm. and they take what they need from a book they, mm. they don't take everything but they take what they absolutely need at that, that particular time yeah. and maybe it is to experience fear um, in a safe place because the fear obviously isn't going to come out and bite them uh, literally but, but it will be powerful it might possibly give them nightmares there's always that danger but I think this is something they're going to to experience anyway in life and, and it's a good uh, I think a book is a good way to it's a kind of filter between real life and and, um, and uh, their emotions and Absolutely. I think it's a safer place to experience fear and, and you mentioned C.S. Lewis so I'm going to mm. jump in because yeah. I kind of cheated and had the whole Chronicles of Narnia um, oh, <laughs> series yeah, and I, I noticed that the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is in your book but if I had to choose mm. one it would probably be the Lion Witch in the Wardrobe and oh, it, yes, it was yes. that, that element of being able to imagine what it would be like you know being at home or at your you know grandparents house and just imagining stepping into a wardrobe and literally being in a totally different place mm. so that kind of um tangible connection you have to your domestic environment is probably why i loved it so much and why you could yes. just imagine heading off on that incredible journey and also hearing about turkish delight for the first time in that <laughs> yes. book it's still when i see turkish delight or eat it <laughs> yeah I that's think right about the great the great tempting uh, fruit sweet isn't it exactly and there's this awful moment in uh, a tear inducing moment in that where Aslan the lion 
god is 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 killed with a sacrificial knife and i didn't get that this was supposed to be a christian allegory or anything i I didn't expect he was going to come back to life i thought oh no aslan's dead oh it's terrible yeah (laughs) sorry go ahead i was gonna i was gonna totally lower the bar and i realized when when um the book that was most influential on me i think was bad jelly the witch by spike milligan and it's totally brief it's handwritten the the pictures are by his children they're completely well amateur they're children's drawings and i think it was like in those bromide era where you sort of wrote it on the page and you just sort of basically photocopied the book and produced it in that way and we read it and read it and read it until it was held together by a rubber band <laughs> and i remember the characters like there was fluffy bum the cat and it was a nonsense the whole book was really a nonsense and the storyline was they go off on an adventure they look for their cow they get caught by a witch they get saved by an eagle and then they come home again sort of thing like it, not much happened mm. but it was terrifying and the pictures were you know by children so they were really sort of ugly scary but amateur (laughs) and it makes I suppose I think back and I couldn't find the book I think one of my brothers must still have it but uh to reread it now but I I figure that um it I mean I used to make book books like that myself Mm. in Mm. the 70s and eight or in the 80s and it just made made writing seem like I could do it I used to make cartoon books and uh, draw little figures and put balloons in and everything and then I would come to the end of it and I'd put more next week and then there never would be any next <laughs> right, week. I just got bored with the idea I didn't want to finish it. Because your dad was quite a, a, a well-known yeah. cartoonist himself and the other lovely thing in this book is that you do spend some time talking about the illustrations in the book too which as yes. an illustrator yes. and for mm. illustrators out there I think is really vital because I do think a lot of what we experience as children in the stories is through the illustrations and some of them are Definitely. incredibly detailed. That's true I mean despite what I said about Enid Blyton um, you, getting kids to use their imaginations which I think is terrific the illustrations are, are very um, evocative too so for example the Narnia books are the, are the drawings of Pauline Baines who did these wonderful like little Persian miniature drawings um, E.J. Shepherd was a, a great illustrator who did both um, the Winnie the Pooh books and um, uh, the Wind in the Willows and um, there's a lovely description of, of Pooh in um, Winnie the Pooh book. So his his eye apparently migrated down his face when and during during the time when Shepherd was doing the drawing, so it lined up with his mouth. And that apparently the whole character of Winnie the Pooh is in the eye being close to the mouth. And every illustrator can relate to that. Yeah. It's all about where you put the dot for the eye. Yes. <laughs> it's all the expression <laughs> on the face. <laughs> and so, what are you doing with this book? Are you are you going around and speaking with people? What with with story time, Jane? Are you? Yeah, well, that's what I'd like to do, certainly. I'd I'd like to... um I think what I'd really like to do is get responses from readers about their favourite books and I'm not sure yet what form it would take but maybe there's some sort of forum I can set up where we exchange these ideas and and, uh, just see if it builds into something that that has legs and goes on because I I think it could what I'd really like to do with this book I think is start a conversation and I hope it will encourage both children and their parents to go back and read some of these great books again and perhaps not some of the not so great books as well but because they can be important too and and just have a think about the books of your childhood because you will discover from that not just the books themselves but something about you as a child and that could lead to more understanding of you as an adult so I think there's a kind of psychological aspect to this that could be really beneficial too so I hope in a small way I'm, I'm starting something big here Yeah for sure and, and next week is book week and character dress up day and I think there will be some more pollies and busters this year <laughs> Sally but what are you actually doing for book week because um, are you going to be out and about yeah I'll be visiting lots of schools and um, looking at some lovely children dressed up in book week parades I'm sure yeah and you'll be here on Monday for our radio yeah, extravaganza <laughs> next Monday morning here on the grapevine as well thank you both for coming in uh, thank you. Uh, Sally Rippin uh, of course and Jane Sullivan's book is called Storytime Growing Up with Books and uh, yeah well hopefully that um, conversation does start Sally and um, Jane and people can get in touch with you all via Ventura Press and um, they can keep an eye out on how to do that yep. thanks yep. so much This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. 